Good morning. Good morning. You're not sitting in your usual seat. Good morning. Thank you, Charlene. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for February 25th, 2015. We are um, finishing out a wonderful February. We finally got Dr. Grant here after some snowstorms a month later. Um, but you know, I like to share some, some kudos. I just got some fresh kudos. Um, that I'd like to read to you that came just last week. Last week, my son was admitted following surgery to correct his scoliosis in his back. It was a scary time for us. We weren't sure what to expect. It was a long eight-hour surgery followed by some painful recovery time. As we get ready to leave and go home, I wanted to share some positive experiences we had this week. I wanted to highlight a few of your nurses here who made my son feel at ease and myself as a mom who was just as scared as he was. I have three teens at home and have worked with the public for many years, so not only is it tough, and I know it can be draining to work with people. I wanted you to know how pleased I was with Catherine Terrian, Stephanie Botello, and Charlie McGrave in the intensive HICU. These folks were so pleasant and polite and genuinely cared about my son, more than I could have ever asked for. They have a great way with patients and also on many occasions were asking if they could get anything for me as well. They encouraged my son as well. He is on the spectrum for autism, has many social difficulties, made it so much easier for him by being patient and understanding. I know how challenging it can be to work with uh, the public, and especially under these circumstances of hospitalization. They were awesome in every way. I wanted to take the time to pass along positive feedback, as I think these days we don't hear the good stuff very often. We hear the negative more often than not. So before we left, I wanted to let you know how pleased I was with these folks for their care, for my son and myself for that matter. So thank you to our friends in the PICU, specific folks. And the sentiment is, uh, is, is, well, is well said. Uh, as I suggested, we're really pleased that uh, Dr. Grant could join us today um, for Grand Rounds, uh, delayed by about, about a month. Uh, Dr. Grant is the um, director, the medical director of Boston Public Schools, uh, supervising the care for 57,000 students at 140 schools, so the associate professor of pediatrics at uh, Boston University School of Medicine and Boston Medical Center, where she works in the adolescent clinic. She received her medical degree from uh, New York Medi Medical College, and residency was completed at the University of Connecticut with an MPH and an adolescent medicine fellowship at uh, my old stomping grounds, Boston Children's Hospital, um, and has practiced both uh, at the adolescent clinic at Boston City and now BMC. She is a member of the executive committee of the Council on School Health of the American Academy of Pediatrics since the late 1990s. She is going to uh, talk to us about our uh, setting where our our patients spend the vast majority of their waking hours and is their primary home. We have a medical home, maybe their secondary home from their, their, from their place of residence, but our medical home pales in comparison with their, uh, their school home. She will be joining our nurses and residents at noon today. Some of the school nurses you might recognize from the community or in the audience, thanks for joining us. And, um, and we'll actually be interacting with some students over at Hanover High School this morning during her visit. So sorry, Linda, for the long introduction. I'm pleased to welcome you to the podium. Okay, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, now, I am delighted to be here. Please be patient with me. I am trying to run a Prezi from my iPad. Sometimes it gets a little finicky. I'm old, but I love, I'm an early adopter, but don't always adopt very well. So um, please be patient with me as I try to run through this. But before I start, can I see who are the school nurses? Terrific. Um, this is like the Academy Awards where the person forgets to thank their significant other. I want to do it up front and thank school nurses. You are the foundation of school health. Um, I know that every day. Yay. And I hope to keep bringing that up as I go through this presentation, but I wanted to put that, that out there first. But first, let's get me hooked up here. Turn. Oh, turn. Well. We'll go this way. All right, first, my no disclosures financially, but I am an adolescent specialist, and I will default to adolescent ease sometimes, so um, please be patient with that. I'm also from 
I've spent my entire career in an inner city, and I realize this is not an inner city environment. And as I do my work with the academy, I realize that across the country um, that um, there is more than inner city, and I do recognize that. But many of the antecedents, the social determinants of health, are the same. It doesn't matter if you're inner city or not. And the other part of inner city is I am a native Bostonian. I'm fourth generation. I have worked very hard to keep my R's in place. But as you see, if I get excited, they will drop. And I try to, to tone that down because it can be a very distracting accent. I, I understand that. OK, school health. What I'm going to do today is take this from, in order to understand the work you do, your connection, medical and educational homes, you have to start with the big picture. And many times, people don't have the context of the big picture. I am a big picture thinker. 30,000 feet is where we're going to start. 30,000 feet, then we're going to take, with a little bit of pontification there of, in philosophy about school health, take it down to the top of the mountain, talk about the components of school health. From there, we're going to go down to sea level, talk about school health services, where the school nurses come in, and uh, the connection between the medical and educational homes, and take it to the neighborhoods of asthma, diabetes. And because we're going to be working with Hanover High School, a little bit around sexual health. Um, and put condoms out there. So that's, that's the lay of the land. And my focus then is to define a big picture. What is school health? The learning objectives are, by the time you leave here, you should go, yeah, I get what school health is. I get the bigger picture. I get what my part of it is and why I should care. And that's number two, is to promote the benefits of connecting the medical home with the educational home. It is essential as far as I'm concerned. And that was my aha moment when I was stuck in the job of medical director years ago. It wasn't something I chose. My department said, you, Linda, go, do. And it clicked. It was a game changer for me. And I moved from being an adolescent only, uh, clinician only, to being someone who looked at the big picture and tried to connect all the components of wellness in the community for a child. And then I'm going to move it down on the logic model out to the right a little bit more and say, how do we get better communication? What are some concrete ways that we can do this? This can only be a drop in the bucket. I hope with this that it starts a conversation. It's not going to answer all your questions. But I'm open to questions at any time if you want to just shout, uh, shout them out. I will try to keep to the time. Uh, and I've, tried, I've already timed this so that it should go with enough for 10 minutes of questions at the end, but anytime I'm glad to. Throughout this, I'm going to pause and go, this is an advocacy moment. I find that people who take care of children are natural born advocates. Advocacy feeds my soul. It keeps me going when the grind seems just too much and I can feel burnout coming around the corner. Advocacy helps keep me on track and pushes away that burnout or that monotony or that sameness. Um, so I want to bring up those moments because there's lots of opportunity in school health for that, whether it be at the national level, the state level, or the local level. I'm not going to talk a lot about systems infrastructure. Glad to do that um, maybe at resident conference, um, talking about putting things together uh, to make sustainability. Uh, lots of times when we're talking school health, it isn't sustainable because we don't have the right infrastructure and the right thought process in place. That's my sweet spot. That's what I like to talk about. But I'm often sucked down into the weeds. Which brings me to what I'm not going to talk about today, which is being a school physician. Um, this is a graphic I had to do as an icebreaker. Um, I'm not going to go through it. It's messy. And that's what my day is like from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock at night. If you look at this little spot here, this is what I love, 4 to 6. Everybody goes home. Uh, it's only me, the custodians, and the mice. Uh, there's no angry parent calling, and I can get done the work that's up in the clouds, the things that I like to do, the things that this doesn't. Um, this is my favorite. No, ma'am, I am not a veterinarian. Slum doctor is a bit harsh. <laughs> that was a comment from a mother who was advocating very hard to get door-to-door -door transportation for her child because she couldn't get the child to the bus stop. She wanted the bus to come pick it up. This is Boston. And um, her child used an inhaler once every blue moon. Um, so 
It, nobody wanted to deal with it, came to me. Those are the weeds. But this is more the stuff that I enjoy working on, developing, and I'm going to touch a little bit on this, develop adolescent medicine consulting service with MGH, BMC, BCA, uh, Boston Children's Hospital, Tufts, and the Borum, which is um, a subsidiary of the Fenway Health Center, and it deals with LGBTQ issues in, in youth. Uh, and we put together a consulting sexual health services, something I can also touch on with the high school, but I think they're a little bit more basic than that at this point. But I'm not going to talk about that. Um, that's what I do as a school physician. This is what I'm going to talk about. This is, this little girl's going to grow up and go to school. This is you taking care of kids. And school is so much, as Dr. Loud said, a part of their life. And we miss the boat if we don't understand how much a part of life is and be part of that life. But I can never do a talk. This is my signature. I should have a little pin for it about silos. Um, I, I, I'm trained in the medical silo. I uh, also trained in the public health silo. Uh, I live in the education silo. And of course, I am, have a home and children. Um, and I don't do as much with the mental health except as a colleague. But these silos are all very important. It's where we do our best work. It's where we learn about. Um, evidence base. We create evidence base. Uh, we support each other. We do research. And what we don't realize is the next silo over is doing the same, and the next silo over is doing the same. And we, we sort of on some level do. It, this isn't rocket science to understand that. But the point is we do not connect between the silos very much. I know this from living in all three silos. I go to one meeting and another meeting, and I say, well, did you know they were talking, they were talking, they were talking. Let's get together and build synergy. It doesn't happen. And, it's, and it is cliche to say that children walk between the silos and their families, and they get lost between the silos. So what I'm talking about with school health today is walking between the silos, the educational home and the medical home in particular, those two silos. Okay, and that leads me to, and this is part of my urban background, but I think this also goes with a rural background, that when you look at those two silos, health disparities and the achievement gap are two sides of the coin. They have the same antecedents, they have the same social determinants. You work on one, you're going to solve the other. And it's very important for, to think of them together. But then that also creates that certain dichotomy. Should the push be on health, and whether it be physical or behavioral health, to pull along academic achievement? Or should the push be on education to pull health and well-being along? And I'm saying, why are we even having that conversation? We should be having composite goals. And I don't care if you're Mrs. Jones doing algebra to sixth graders in a classroom, or um, and also with Dr. Smith taking care of adolescents in a clinic, or you're the secretaries of health and human services and education, composite goals is where it's at. And a lot of my advocacy of work I've done is supporting at the highest levels when we start talking nationally about having those composite goals. And I'm going to touch on that at the end. Okay, so that's getting us up to now we're going to come down from 30,000 feet. Now we're going to go to the top of the mountain and we're going to talk about what are the components of school health? What goes into school health? Well, if I ask any one of you, you'll have your own opinion about what school health is. If I ask school nurses, um, they're going to say, well, of course, this is an EpiPen. Let's make sure we have anaphylaxis protocols, that we have all our protocols in place for our chronic disease, that we know what to do in lockdown. Uh, we know um, anything uh, around um, behavioral health and how we link up within the school. That's from the nurse's standpoint. But if I were to ask wellness people, and sometimes the nurses are wellness people, as you get bigger and more bulkier and more students and more bureaucracy, you start to have different directors. So with us, we have a separate wellness director. And her responsibility is worrying that kids have enough physical activity. And along with that, to make sure that when they go to eat in the lunchroom, that there aren't vending machines selling unhealthy food, that the food meets standards for health, creating some of those standards perhaps for health, making sure that competitive foods don't blot out the good work of what the lunchroom people are trying to do. If I talk to 
an administrator of school police or the school psychologist, they're going to want to make sure that their school has not becoming another Columbine or another Newtown. And isn't this sad that since Newtown, these are all the other shootings we've had since Newtown. So what this is saying to you is not only are there external silos, but there are internal silos. The smaller you are as a district, the less likely you're going to hit as many internal silos, and you know each other, and you can work. But when you start getting bigger, and Boston is really just a big town. It is not a big city. It is nothing compared to, to New York or LA. Um, it's about the same size as Philadelphia or San Francisco, but it's still small. Um, but we have many internal silos, and they can be as dividing as the external silos. So a way to be able to corral that and put it together was devised back in the, I think, 80s uh, by the CDC. Who here knows about the coordinated school health model? Just, OK. The school nurses, you know, maybe a little? Um, the coordinated school health model said there are m major components, and I'm just going to read through them. They've changed now from 8 to 10, but I'm going to read through them very quickly. Um, counseling, psychological, and social services, you need that in the school. These are all things that need to be there to have a healthy school. Social emotional climate, making sure you don't have bullying, making sure LGBTQ kids are welcome. Physical environment making sure that you have green cleaners, that you have integrated pest management. Employee wellness, you can't have teachers who are swearing and fried walking up and down the classroom uh, and have healthy kids. Family engagement, families need to be involved, the community needs to be involved, and you need to have the various health educations, whether it be general health education, physical education, nutrition, environmental education, along with the good, healthy health room um, uh, kitchen practices, uh, and then you have health services. And I'm going to come back to health services. Now, that was a great model. But the problem, and the problem has always been, where did it come from? It came from the CDC. It wasn't the problem. It came from the CDC. But that's a medical model. And the educational world didn't necessarily buy into it. Recently, because I've been doing this a while, hitting my head against walls trying to make these connections, uh, the ASCD, which is an educational uh, national organization that made up of curriculum directors said, wait a minute, health and education, they're connected. And they bought in, made a marriage with the CDC. And this is now the new model. And part of what is so very important on this is that it focuses on the whole child. And really, their motto is whole school, whole community, whole child. Yes, this is what we've been trying to get to. We've got the educators now involved. So this, to me, has started to be a game changer. And working together with the CDC, now we have an educational, now working with a medical model. But today, that's just your background. Now I've taken you down to the top of the mountain. We're going to focus just on health services, because that is where you connect with the medical home the most. But I needed to have you have that background to um, understand that a little bit better. The other thing that's important and has been a game changer is everybody says, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence that working together will make a difference? Charles Bosch didn't do anything so totally extraordinary except put it all down in writing. And this is a monograph. Has anybody seen this? This is a wonderful document. It's a monograph coming out of, I think he's Columbia, that says, yeah, health and education is connected. And here's the evidence. You can't say we can't do it anymore because here's the evidence. We're all evidence-based. Here's the evidence. And it, it's a very good model. He did focus on inner city kids and health disparities and the achievement gap, but it really does apply across the board. And for the students um, at Hanover, I took a part of this monograph that gives them the evidence um, behind it. It's sort of the, the research reference part. And what he said is, it's, it's there. We've got the stuff, but it hasn't been high quality. It hasn't been strategically planned, and it hasn't been effectively coordinated. Everybody does their own thing in their own silos, and it's scattered. This is what we need to do. We need to do these three components. So here's my definition of school health. Take home, Pearl. 
After doing this for many years, to me, school health is a part of overall child wellness that addresses health, social, and psychological barriers to learning within the school venue. That's very important. When we're in schools doing health, school nurses, you're keeping them safe, you're taking away the barriers to them learning. That is the key. Nobody holds me accountable as a physician, whether a kid reads or not, but we hold schools accountable for absolutely everything. And what they should be held accountable for around health is those things that are barriers to learning. School health is the cooperation of the community. Schools can't do it alone, and yet we expect schools to do it alone, financially and through the sharing of resources. And it's also planning at the community level that says, okay, community, what do we want for wellness for our children? What are our goals? We sit down together, we talk about it, and say, okay, here's what we want. This belongs in the school, this belongs out in this community agency, this belongs in the public health world. But we give schools only what is educationally relevant to take on and own. And once again, that really focuses on the composite goals. Okay, now coming down from the top of the mountain, now we're going down to sea level. Can you guess what sea level is? It's health services. Now, I need to define health services, and school nurses speak up if I say this incorrectly. The foundation I've already identified are school nurses, but there's also school-based health centers, and school-based health centers get a lot of play, and I really love school-based health centers. I started the first one in Boston many, many years ago in 1986, uh, but um, they're only one part of taking care and, and providing services within a school. There's also school link services. That means a uh, a health agency comes in, doesn't set up shop, doesn't build the walls, doesn't have to get certified for clean, dirty sinks, just comes in and works, or provides an access backdoor number. Hi, I've got a kid that needs to come over, needs to be seen now, wham, off they go. There are many ways to doing it, but always the school nurse is the foundation. I'm going to read to you, um, this is our sort of mission statement for our health services in Boston. School-based health care removes the health obstacles to learning by ensuring access and or referral to primary health care services, managing chronic disease conditions during school hours, providing emergency care for illness or injury, identifying communicable diseases, measles coming, um, and enacting practices and systems to ensure that all students have access to key resources. And then, very important, thing that we've had to add on and support sexual and reproductive health in a safe and supportive environment. And when I get to talking, uh, it's not a chronic disease, but when I get to talking about different ways that health services can work on programs and issues, um, that comes up. What is important is that it's got added, and over the years, reproductive health wasn't something we talked about in schools. And now we're at the level of putting locks in in, in schools. Pretty amazing, at least from my standpoint, who's been doing this for a long time. Okay, walking down the hall here, I, this is a shout-out to my colleagues. Uh, and this is a, um, a sort of a... This is one of those advocacy moments. Five years ago, the CDC put out an FOA that said, we are looking for an agency to be able to improve school health services in 50 school districts across the country. And it went out nationally. I, worked, I was fortunate to work with the American Academy of Pediatrics on this, the Council on School Health. And um, the AAP got the award. We are now in our fourth year of working on it. I'm on the steering committee. And the heart of that award, and you'll see a theme coming up over here, is you've got to connect the medical home with the public health initiatives that are happening in the community and with school services. These are the three main stakeholders who are involved with taking care of the physical health of children. So you, these are our core partners, and then we branch out from there. We have three cohorts. Boston was in the first cohort, and what I'm going to be doing is describing a little bit of what we did in this process. And we now have a process for any school district across the country to be able to assess their school health services uh, in their district and move the needle 
we have a guide, everything to be able to say. Everybody's in a different state of evolution. If you're very sophisticated, you can still always move the needle. If you're just starting, yay, we can help you move the needle a little bit over to get to the goals that you want. All right, so the first thing was an assessment. We assess pretty well in Boston. We have lots of policies, but what we found we didn't do well was connect with a medical home. Uh, the nurses tried very hard. I don't know how hard it is here to, to reach out and get um, physicians or clinicians, nurses in the clinics, but we're on different it's different rhythms and it's very hard to make the connection. So we worked on how we could uh, do that and we brought in the steering committee to help us decide on how to do that. But really the overarching issue is people didn't get it. Internally, the internal silos didn't get what nurses do. Nurses are a hidden healthcare resource in this country. They are doing healthcare. They see many more patients in a day than I see in a clinic. Uh, in the hospital, and um, they're not being paid. Oftentimes it's educational dollars, sometimes public health, but public health is poor too. It, they are not being paid to do the work that is getting done, and the health care community is getting away free without paying for it. They are unpaid services. That will come up towards the end here again. All right. Um, so our major focus became letting internal silos know what we do, getting our word out there, pounding the pavement internally, but then improving the communication with our primary care to know what we can do for programs. Hey, we've got asthma problem over in this community. Let's get the health centers together to work on it. We've got a problem with diabetes over here. Let's get those folks together to work on it. And then finally, as we move out on the logic model to the right, getting down to whole child, every child, being able to have case management and connection with their educational home. So let me throw it back to you. Here are some questions. In your practice, how often have you talked with school nurse about a patient? I heard at dinner last night there seems to be some great communication. Um, have you ever gone to a support team meeting or a pupil meeting around a kid and discussed the kid? Do you get feedback from the school before changing the medications? Do you just rely on what parents are telling you? Do you ask about absenteeism when you do routine health care or at an acute visit? Do you know the health-related policies in your school? Can you name them and where to look them up? Have you ever questioned a 504 plan? Have you ever participated in writing a 504 plan or offering? It's really the team at the school that writes a 504, but if you have given that, child behavioral people do a lot of that. Have you ever felt frustrated trying to communicate with the schools? If you say no, you're lying because everybody <laughs> has felt frustrated. And know that the schools feel frustrated in trying to talk with you all. Do you sit on a shack, which is School Health Advisory Council uh, or a Wellness Council? And everybody should know that wellness has become an incredible word. I would never have guessed wellness would ever take off like it has. Every school has to have a wellness committee uh, based if you get money from the federal government to do the school pro lunch programs. That's where it came from. So every school has to have a wellness council. Okay, So think about that. I'm not asking for answers. This is where we surveyed Boston Medical and we surveyed Children's Hospital Boston uh, and asked them, when you do a health plan for a kid, where do these components fall? Do you communicate them to a school nurse, 45%? Which, yeah, that's not too, too bad. Communicated to the family, 85%. I'm thinking maybe 15% was the adolescents. You know, sometimes we don't communicate some of this stuff back to parents. Addressing the impact of chronic disease on academic performance, 33%. Not thinking about necessarily what the role of diabetes or asthma was on this kid's academic performance. Addressed absenteeism, 24%. Addressed resource links, where to go for help and support, 15%. And did they really, do you know, is the kid making goals, academic goals? I live in these last ones, the absenteeism, the obtaining educational goals. My kids are teenagers, inner city. They hate school. They're disengaged. They want to drop out. So for me, this is so much the battle of what I work on in schools, is making sure they stay in school and making sure they understand the connection between health and academics. OK. Sea level, now we'll move into the neighborhood. And we're going to get into specifics. Diabetes. I just picked several. Um, okay, for time. 
I don't know if you're experiencing it, but we are certainly experiencing it across the country. And in Boston, our numbers are about the same. There's been a 21% increase in diabetes in youth since 2001. We did our run. We have about 115, I think. No, maybe I, that's sickle cell. We have 130 type 1 diabetics. Um, many of them are just newly diagnosed uh, when they come into school. And that's been a major increase. And that's important for us because unlike you in New Hampshire, we do not have a nurse in every school. We do not have a nurse in, every 100, uh, in our 140 schools. We only have 110 nurses to cover uh, the 140 schools. Um, certainly diabetes type 2 is climbing up there. But my big concern, as, and my headaches come with trying to manage the type 1 diabetics who are going to have more tendency to emergencies in school. Uh, this is Helping Student with Diabetes Succeed. Do you have that? This is a great manual that the ADA, in conjunction with Health and Human Services, put out. It's a very good model. And one of the, um, it's been on the listserv for school nurses, that's been a big bone of contention has been um, the fact that ADA supports there being non-licensed people doing uh, managing diabetes in school. So the calculus teacher can step away for a little bit and go help the student with diabetes adjust their insulin dosage uh, based on carbohydrate counting and correction factors, and they train them to do that. Uh, this is something supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics, but not my group, not my council in school health. We held out nurse in every school, nurse should be doing it, and that's what we're trying to work for. Uh, there's too much room for error. Uh, even school nurses, with the volume that they have, have made errors in medication. Non-medical people, I think it's very tricky. Um, what we did in Boston was, uh, well, first it started in the western start, uh, part of Massachusetts. Boston has a very strong state school nurse group. And they said, OK, we're going to take this head on. Only nurses can give out medication in Massachusetts. I don't know if it's the same in New Hampshire. But in, uh, only, only nurses can do it, so, uh, and certainly parenteral medication. So they said, if this is trying to come into Massachusetts, let's head it off at the pass. Let's work with our people, endocrinologists. And what they did was work in the western part of the state to look at 20 students with po poorly controlled diabetes and get down into the details and do case management. The responsibility of the hospital was a clinical liaison who would come out, work with the school nurses, and the district had to provide a nurse liaison. So a nurse specialist in diabetes who would work with her fellow nurses to make sure that they understood and had all the accurate information. And it was really very successful. So the state wanted to duplicate that. We in Boston took it on um, and followed their recommendations, which were after a, they go for an endocrine visit, could the endocrinologist at the time of diagnosis, at every emergency room visit, after any visit, and after hospitalizations, call the school nurse, fill them in, let them know. Here's the number, here's their cell, call. Keep them up on the A1C. Nurses follow the A1C, and they make sure that the child goes for their latest aid and makes the appointments and make sure that all the um, orders were current. Nurses observed the glucometer, particularly the older kids weren't very good at giving the correct uh, information. We learned how to transmit it electronically and um, also make sure they were up to date on correction factors. Lessons learned, nurses were incredibly more comfortable dealing with pumps, dealing with correction factors and carbohydrate counting. Clinicians had a better understanding of what schools can do. It's sort of you just don't throw out orders and expect schools. We've had orders for hanging chemotherapy, orders for blood. I mean, please. There is only certain things you can do in the school. And this was an eye-opener for the specialists to see. PCPs are a little bit more savvy, but for the specialists to get an idea of what was realistic. Um, timely provider school nurse communication is far more effective than working with the family as the intermediary with the school. Can't say that enough. When you made that connection, it happened, and kids got what they needed. It's just expanding that safety net, the medical safety net. Not that the families weren't capable, not that the families weren't caring and understanding. It just expanded that safety net. 
Um, and we found that students were inaccurate in reporting. Now, we are focusing a little bit more on the older kids in this study. Whoops, okay, challenges. Continuing um, education of school nurses, we always have to have more education around this and learning about pumps, identifying endocrine teams willing to go into the school. It is hard. Uh, we're all, we build, therefore we are as physicians. And if we're not billing, uh, we're not doing what we have to for our institutions. So if we have to figure out ways to get billed while we're in the schools. And information sharing, um, very important. Okay, second one. Asthma, asthma. Um, we loved what happened with the diabetes. Two diabetes nurse liaisons, they are active school nurses. They get substitutes to go out and work with their 108 colleagues to help them when they have kids come in with diabetes and train. So it's train the trainer, it's support the trainer. Um, trainers supporting uh, their fellow <laughs> constituents. So we loved what that did. So. We got a little money from the state, state put to aside Prevention Wellness Trust to look at multiple things. Only one was for children and that was asthma. So we said, well, it worked for diabetes. Let's take a look at doing it. Let's get four asthma nurses who are regular school health nurses. And we're gonna train them to be as, uh, in this, the training program for uh, asthma educators. So we paid for them to be asthma educators and we looked at along with our health partners, so going back to that AEP initiative, health department, medical world, school, we had our health department identified the places where there was the highest asthma, 28 schools, and seven neighborhood health centers. So now we've got the health department, the neighborhood health centers, and the school nurses working together and having strategically planned high quality service, services in place to be able to address asthma. We're just at the beginning of this. Um, so we created the asthma content nurse role, supported the neighborhood health centers to focus time on meeting to develop composite goals for what we want to see happen with kids with asthma. Um, and then we dropped, uh, brought in absenteeism. Let's look at absenteeism. Let's see if it is making a difference. Are the kids out because they have asthma? Or are they out for other reasons, other social issues that make the asthma not get addressed? Uh, we're looking at e-referrals. Our nurses have uh, electronic medical records. Do you have electronic medical records, the nurses? Still paper? Electronic medical records are very helpful. We're trying to see how our, we can do data now. Data is magic, data, data is power. You get the data. That's what they learned in Massachusetts. When several governors ago they were gonna cut school nursing, they brought out the data that said, look, this is how many times nurses saw, the hundreds of thousands of times in Boston, nurses saw kids throughout the school year. You cut us, those kids are gonna go home, they're not gonna be in their seat learning, you're not gonna make annual yearly progress, schools are gonna go downhill. So they got the point, that's why data is, is, is power. Um, so we're gonna connect the e-referrals and we're working on that, that is something that's gonna be a challenge. We know that it's gonna take a long time. And the other part that came up was evaluation. We tend not to evaluate, we're so busy doing, at least school nurses are so busy doing, that they don't necessarily have a chance to evaluate. And what we're gonna do, we have put evaluation in place right from the start, and PDSA, do people know PDSA? It's Plan, Do, Study, Act. It's a very, a very quick way, it's not this long quality assurance project that you do over a year. <laughs> You look at something, you say, I'm not getting back asthma action plans, so what I'm gonna to do to put in place um, is this intervention. Let's study it for a week or two, see if it makes a difference intensively, and then if it doesn't, we tweak it again. Very simple, but it hasn't been done. And that gets into now looking, once again, at having quality services. So. Reflection back to you. Do you know the school's environmental record? Do you know if they um, have um, IPM, integrated pest management in your schools? Do you know if they use green cleaners? This is all important for your asthmatics. Is there student health education for chronic disease management? Do you know how many of your patients have 504 plans? Are staff trained to recognize symptoms of chronic disease? That's school staff. Are the schools aware when the kids are hospitalized? Do you know how to access tutors? So those are some of the things related to that connecting the medical and educational home. Okay, finally, 
Uh, let me go through and just touch bases. Um, I'm not going to talk really about teen pregnancy. We know that teen, uh, kids who, have, who are pregnant, they have less chance of academic success, 29% lower odds of attending college. Um, but then what about STIs? What's educationally relevant about STIs? That's something I had to convince myself of. And I have to say the school nurses in Boston were far more convinced because they focused on the pregnancy that we needed to do a lot of sexual health in the schools. Uh, because all you need is one pregnant teen and you realize how they've short-circuited their, potentially short-circuited their academic. But STIs and teen preg pregnancy share many of the same underlying risk factors and so that's what ties it in for me. Um, we were lucky in Boston that we had community will. We had a city councilor who, city council in Boston controls school department budget to a certain degree, said you will put in there health education, sex education, and condoms and figure out how to do it. Um, and a superintendent circular is where we post all of our policies. So we had condom policy coming up at the same time pregnant and parenting and the pregnant and parenting just said we you cannot discriminate against teens because they're parenting uh, they have to have time to breastfeed they have to have time to uh, take off when they have to go with their child and we need to incorporate that in the health plan just as much as we incorporate anything else so this is happening out in the community community telling us we have to do it and we go yes because for many years those of us who give out condoms in buckets in the clinic Felt, felt stymied at not being able to do it in, in schools. There was a perfect storm for us. At the same time, the CDC, now we're talking about the sexually transmitted side of the CDC as opposed to the chronic disease side, which is where the other grant I talked about uh, is based. Uh, the 1308 grants came out, and Boston became one of, I don't know what they're, 15 across the country. And what this said was, they're going to give you money to figure out for schools how to do sex education, sexual health services, and provide a climate that was um, supportive of LGBTQ kids. So there were three components to it. My component, the one I'm in charge of, is the sexual health services. Uh, at the same time, once again, going back to that model of what does our community, our community partners want, what does the health department want, their mission was chlamydia. Very high rates of chlamydia. They wanted to see to get it down. We were higher than the state. We're higher usually than nationally. What can we do to get that down? Okay, we've got condoms from the community saying, give us condoms. We have um, the, the pregnant and parenting teens. Now we have them saying this. So what can we put together? Who else do we need to bring in? And that's where we started our coalition uh, connecting with the medical community. Who are the experts on sex? The medical experts. It's the adolescent guys. So we reached out to Bob. I'm from Boston Medical, but um, we had a representative from Boston Medical, from Tufts, from Children's, from Mass General, and the Borum, which is the clinic that focuses on youth uh, and specializes in LGBTQ kids. We brought everybody together and said, a little bit of teeny seed money, you know, a couple hundred dollars, let's sit together, talk, what are we going to do? What are we going to do and to um, support schools in doing this? And what we've developed is a referral network now that uh, we have a referral manual out there, we have a process of how to refer, and we're going to track to see do kids want to go internally to school-based health centers, to school nurses, to their coach who are part of the condom availability teams, or do they want to go to, um, I mean, where are they going? We've got to learn and get the data, and then once we have the data, pump up those that the kids are going to. I'm going to play this just briefly. This is 30 seconds, and it's embedded, I hope. I'm going to hold it up to the microphone because my mic, my mic isn't working. In June 2013, Can you hear that? the committee voted to revise the district wellness policy we to include provisions on sexual health education and condom availability in high schools. This won't work. This webinar is high schools in establishing their condom availability programs, which are mandated under the wellness policy. It is directed at those school staff who will be... That's okay. It is understood and reasonable. It was a good idea. I was showing off of how I can embed something <laughs> into a Prezi. Um, it's also... Now, is there two? Are you, am I okay? Um, what this does 
is I put this on our website so that it tells all the schools how to do, set up their CAT team. This would be good for the high school guys to take a look at. And um, how, how to set it up, how to make, make it happen. It's 17 minutes long. Put it on in your back while you're, while you're correcting papers. Uh, put it on in the background. Something will get absorbed. It only takes a few minutes. Um, oh, I got turned. And um, it's another way to reach out and do more intense communication. We also, as part of that survey I talked about before with the Boston Medical and Children's, uh, asked our, our community people, do you want us to do this in the school? Do you want us to test in school? Do you want us to treat? Do you want us to do the whole shebang? Do you want us to identify and just refer? They said, oh, please, take care of it all. You can take care of anything sex you're welcome to take care of in, in, uh, in schools. <laughs> Right, so that throws me back here. Um, other questions to ponder. Do you know the differences between HIPAA and FERPA for confidentiality? Do you know your state confidentiality laws for adolescents, what you can talk about, what you can't talk about, what you can send and refer them without parental notification? Are your school districts able to dispense condoms? And that's, of course, what we're going to talk about at Hanover. Do you test in schools for gonorrhea and chlamydia? We do test in schools for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and we not just in the school-based health center, uh, we have about 18 school-based health centers, but we test. Uh, the health department is now trying to replicate what I call pee in a cup, um, and they or pee in a cup in a bag. They have kids um, just blanket look at urines. They've done that in Philadelphia and just screen blanketly. I'm not so much a fan of that one, but we're, we're keeping an open mind about it. Do you know what curriculum is being used for sex education in your schools? And is it taught by certified health educators or you just have a bunch of people coming in who have an interest in doing it? Okay, this is the home stretch. Okay, I'm, what I'm going to take now is we've gone from 30,000, top of the mountain, down to, um, I'm, I'm going, down to the uh, ground level and then down into your neighborhood. So now what I'm going to do is just talk a few little things that can be done concretely. Thank you. Uh, but I do have to do a shout out to my colleagues. Um, I actually had this embedded. This is a video. Uh, but I wasn't sure I was going to get to the, be able to scan to the right place in the video, so I just did a screen capture. Uh, anybody can go for these. School nurses, you can go for these. This is put out by the Council on School Health from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's one of those groups you can join. Interest is in school health, uh, and my colleagues have ranged over the years from someone interested in, uh, who is an endoc um, a GI guy who was focused on BMI and obesity, uh, to people like me who are school physicians uh, and state people. They, they range all over. Those are, the, those are the pediatricians, but we know the importance of working with school nurses. And a little bit of money is put aside. It's not a huge amount of money. It's only $2,000. But what happens is that it's, the 2000 is there to make that connection between the medical home and the school nurse to be able to connect medically and academically. Uh, and the example um, that they have on the website is Harsha Bhaktani and Debbie Somerville work together to fix asthma issues in their community. And, um, and it became making it nothing rocket science, but it was enough to be able to make that connection around asthma action plans, being able to manage the kids' asthma and improve their um, asthma management. So think about that. That's something concrete all of you can do. <coughs> website. This is my, uh, our website. Um, I am not really good at making websites up, so it's pretty basic. Um, somebody did start it off for me, and I've maintained it. I am the webmaster for this, uh, bpshealthservices.org. But what is key for this is um, you can't see it here, but under resources, here I have tabs for parents, tabs for school nurses, tabs for principals, and tabs for community clinicians. Anything you want to know as a community clinician, the forms you need, the names of the nurses, their emails, and the phones to call them on are there. 
So if you're using an EMR and you're on the computer, you can just put this up on the desktop if you can go in. You got a kid going to the Mather School, you can go in and find who the nurse is at the Mather and email them. Tries to keep it within the two different rhythms, the school day versus the, um, the uh, clinic day. Now, another thing I'm trying to do is how do you get people to communicate? It's herding cats. Uh, I'm using a thing called Basecamp as a project management tool uh, to try to bring in the health department all in one place. Another port is SharePoint. Just ways for people not just to get listservs or to dump material, but to have conversations, to-do lists, tracking our success as we go along. Um, a narrated webinar, you almost heard an example of that. Uh, that I did, and I've done several of those, posted it on the website to help people walk through and make it easier for them to understand the expectations. I'm going to try to be doing on live online trainings. I've been trained to do live online, which will be bringing together the PCPs in the community to talk with the school nurses online uh, as and, and have a kind of virtual meeting through GoToMeeting, but directing it in a... Um, over some chronic, uh, some specific issue. And finally, I'm trying to add CEUs, CMEs. Um, you folks get your CMEs by being here. For a lot of the community clinicians don't have time to go to the many grand rounds that are in the Boston area. So particularly risk management, want to get the risk management out there and see if there are um, MOC activities when we have to do quality assurance that we can tie into the schools. And finally, um, just two more slides. This is important. This is the game changer. Um, and this is an advocacy moment that I feel really excited about that I was part, to, um, part of. Three years ago, uh, the Campaign for School Health brought together people from across the country, and I represented the AAP. It was held in Washington, not on the Hill, but it was uh, a group of people who came together that said, we have to do better in financing those health services, particularly the school health nursing services. Uh, they're doing all this work and they're not being paid for it. And it, it's free and this is unfair. But part of the thing that was getting in the way was a, a, a thing called the free care rule. That is, you can't be paid for Medicaid if kids with insurance, you're doing it for them for free. And a lot of lobbying happened uh, over the next three years. And finally, in December of this past year, um, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare said, okay, we get it. We're going to repeal the free care part of it, and we're going to work with each state to figure out how we can use Medicaid to help support school health services. This is not going to happen overnight. Uh, it is certainly, um, for me, I think a way Unlike you, we do not have a nurse in every school in Massachusetts, although we come better. But there are plenty of states around the country where one nurse services 20,000 kids. And how do you do case management in that? Well, of course you don't. So this is going to be a way that we, I think, will be a very big game changer for schoolhouse services. And finally, I am going to close with a quote from my favorite advocate around school health. She told it like it was and sort of took the knocks for telling it like it is. But her statement wasn't the first to say this and won't be the last, but certainly captures, and you've all heard it. And of course, the person is our former Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders, who said you can't educate a child who's unhealthy and you can't keep a child healthy who isn't educated. And really, that's the connection between the medical and educational home. So I want to thank you all. I love talking about school health. And my accent wasn't too bad, I hope. <laughs> so thank you. So before, before she leaves, I know our diabetes educator and was concerned that the, the asthma slide didn't have a spacer. So <laughs> sorry. Transition from diabetes to asthma. <laughs> That's right.
Yeah, thank you um, for your great talk as well as the awesome work that you're doing and sharing with all of us. Um, I um, really like thinking about your examples and the integration of sort of the different teams and whatnot. And I wondered if you had thoughts or if and you have any um, sort of additional projects that you're working on that um, address directly address some of the issues that you sort of raised um, related to social determinants of health. You kind of mentioned them in several different places um, as being important um, and how you're working to pull in sort of the, the bigger team that's needed to right. address some of those issues. Right. And I find those cases to be the most challenging. Right. And I, I mean, I, I'm just focusing on the physical health here. We have a whole division with psychology and behavioral health, how they're setting up their infrastructure. Those are the internal silos and how they're working on that. So social workers, um, we have the psychologists, who, school psychologists do not always just do testing for SPED. And I didn't even bring up SPED here. SPED is another whole uh, category that has to be integrated in there. So that's working with that group. And that's the internal silos. And I didn't focus on that. That's that model of the circle with all the other groups and working together with them. That has to happen. But right now, my focus has to be on health services in particular, um, because I'm there three days a week. That's all. I don't do this full time. And uh, my efforts have been there. But we understand that those exist. We have community partners for that. But that's next. If you think of this as a logic model as you go out and you build off and what you want for your first one to three years, three to five years, five years beyond, that's getting out a little bit further. And it's out of my control, truthfully. I have a new superintendent coming in. I have a new mayor. Um, I have watched many mayors, many superintendents come and go, and you get really close to grabbing the ring, and somebody comes in and goes, I don't like any of this, and out it goes, and you're back starting at scratch. So um, we, we are working on it, but from my control and what I can do, I felt I target it and work really more intensely on the health services, but keep an eye open to the bigger picture. I know that wasn't quite the answer, but we are working on it. Yes. Thank you. As somebody, my former life, who used to work in school health clinics, this is all great stuff, and I appreciate everything you're doing. I wanted to ask a top of the Mount Washington question, kind of related, <laughs> if I could. Um, so with all the emerging evidence that really um, the first three to four years of yes. life are where um, our educational bases are set and also our health bases for kids, I wondered if you're familiar with a program through the Chicago schools in, um, in uh, neighborhoods with a lot of disparity um, and risk factors where they actually took families in the first few years of life and continued on through the first grades in school, supported the families and incorporated the families into the school program through the children's preschool years and had amazing success. And so I wondered if there was anything else you were aware of in the local area or region that kind of follows up on that. Yeah, we have some of those programs in Boston, Thrive to, uh, by Five. I mean, they're, they're, they're fragmented, and they're under someone else's control, but they do exist. Same thing with the Harlan Children's Zone. And they did that, a lot of work around that with um, the um, asthma work. When we are looking at absenteeism around asthma, we are focusing very much, uh, and also the state has an absenteeism uh, data collection that we're looking at. We're focusing on the first uh, first grade because we know that absenteeism is a determinant later on of academic success. If you're absent in first grade, you're pretty much guaranteed you're not going to have ac academic success. Is it all related to chronic disease? No, and we know that from calling home. So we're trying to do some of, of those kinds of um, activities as well. But you're absolutely correct. It is that early years. You've got to get at them at the early years. That was a nice segue. I knew you were going to be there, Dr. Rizek. So, the same way, the same way um, next Wednesday's Grand Round speaker is Dr. Perry Class, and now a writer for the New York Times who's going to continue the education and health theme with a reach out and read talk. Probably a friend of yours, yes. Perry. And she's going to continue with us at the Mount Washington Dartmouth Pediatric Conference, 25th anniversary next weekend. Joe, we still have room? Oh, we always have room. Excellent. So, and Perry's great. So we'll have another BMC uh, former faculty joining us. But Dr. Riziki, welcome back from Hawaii. What do you have for us? Hawaii. Uh, has anybody ever tried to commercialize or franchise school health services? It seems as if 
much of what you presented could readily be done yes. by CVS pharmacy type. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure I quite like that analogy. <laughs> but but um, yes, in New Jersey, um, there is a franchise, and I'm not going to, I think it begins with N. Newmark, um, does, has really, uh, has a concession. And it works very well um, through the New Jersey, uh, I think it was, was it New Jersey? No, I'm sorry, it was Delaware. It was Delaware. Uh, not a lot of schools in Delaware, but um, compared to New Jersey. But yes, they do, they, they have the ability to do that. And I don't know if it's, it's not CVS, but it's an organization of healthcare facilities who have taken over and unified that. So in that sense, I like that a little bit better than CVS. <laughs> yeah. no, nothing against CVS, but um, I think that part of the commercialization, because I need to get kids, I'm sorry, just one last, immunizations, and none of the public health people will help me with that. Um, they say it's my job because kids can't be in school without immunizations. Uh, and the only option they came up with me was having kids go get their immunizations, because there's a long wait to get primary care, and primary care won't give it without um, having a visit. So just go to your local CVS, but they have to pay for it. And CVS wasn't willing to kick in and help on that. So um, I'm, not, I'm not a fan. So, so I, was, Alan, I was familiar with a staffing agency in Ohio that did school health nurse staffing. Um, but it's a business model. And you can imagine in order to make it sustainable that uh, the services were not exactly uh, quality we would have liked. So we competed. Our hospital, African Children's, was an alternative fund, um, staffing service for some schools. And um, so, yeah, it's out there, you can imagine. So, well, I want to thank, uh, thank you for coming back.